This is the Monday, August 15th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. At the Hall of Justice in Nuremberg, history's greatest trial nears its fateful close. Under the most elaborate security precautions, only official cars pass the heavily guarded street barricade. Flags of the victorious allies, sitting in judgment on the International Military Tribunal, fly over the court building. Supreme Court Justice Jackson, Chief United States Prosecutor, arrives. Credentials of spectators and officials alike are closely scrutinized. For it is amidst a grim and military atmosphere that 21 Nazis are to hear their fate. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine follows the journey of the men and women who, in the aftermath of World War II in Europe, dedicated themselves to visiting justice upon Hitler's henchmen. Veteran author and foreign correspondent Andrew Nagorski brings us these stories in his new book, The Nazi Hunters. Andrew paints a picture of the sort that I love to sink my teeth into, one that strips away the myths and caricatures of popular fiction, things you can't help but pick up when you're a young kid watching The Boys from Brazil, say, or one of these other films. And The Nazi Hunters is an implicit call to action. As the last cogs of the National Socialist Party's bloody legacy rust away, we need to remember things as they really happened, not as they appear on the silver screen. If you're on Twitter, follow today's guest at Andrew Nagorski. You can also read his latest articles at andrewnagorski.com and check out his previous books. Those include the companion to today's title, Hitlerland, American Eyewitnesses to the Nazi Rise to Power. Okay, now that we've arrived in the aftermath of the 20th century's bloodiest conflict, when Germany lies in ruins, let's join Andrew Nagorski and meet the Nazi hunters. For five savage and bloody years, humanity has waited for this moment of retribution when the insane ambitions of men like these would come up against the stone wall of world justice. I'm joined on the line by Andrew Nagorski author of The Nazi Hunters. Thank you for taking the time to talk with the History Author Show. Thank you very much, Dean. A pleasure to be here. I enjoyed the book, and I started with the title, and I thought, as I was putting together my questions, there's a theme that flows throughout The Nazi Hunters, and that's that 
despite this image we all have of Cloak and Dagger, really exciting spy types, they were not a single unified group. Maybe we picture a dirty dozen group out there with knives in their teeth. That's not the case here. And in fact, the name that you use for your title of Nazi Hunters, that bothers some of them in the sense of the description, not your book, but the description of them as Nazi Hunters. One of those is Eli Rosenbaum. So tell us, what doesn't he like about the term and who were these men and women really? Sure. I mean, Rosenbaum, first of all, was the longest serving head of the Office of Special Investigations of the U.S. Justice Department. That was an office that was set up in 1979 to track down people who got into this country under false pretenses after the war, usually as refugees, as fleeing political persecution in Eastern Europe and Central Europe but did not reveal that, in fact, that they were war criminals. And when the pressure built up on the United States to confront these people and to do something about them, the OSI, the Office of Special Investigations, was set up. Rosenbaum was a young researcher there who eventually became its director. And what Rosenbaum and others don't like about that term of Nazi hunters is that for them, it it is mixed up with the myth, the cloak and dagger, as you say, the idea of people sort of going through someplace in Patagonia or elsewhere and hunting down these Nazis who are still kind of this terrifying group. What he says and what he explained to me is why he's uncomfortable with it a bit, and he knows it's, it's journalistic shorthand, is that The real life work of the Nazi hunters like himself, those who represent governments and law enforcement agencies, is often very tedious work of tracking down, say, an auto worker in Cleveland and then proving that, in fact, this person was a concentration camp guard who was known as particularly brutal during during the war and eventually proving his his identity in the U.S. case, at most stripping him of his citizenship and getting him deported. That's a long process. It can take several years. The other thing about Nazi hunting, the the term that sometimes it implies revenge, when in fact, right from the beginning, as I explain in my book, the Nuremberg trials and the early trials were as much about educating the public about what happened and the principles that should should be established in terms of what is considered legitimate behavior, even in warfare, that, that, that it's as much as it is about revenge. So all these things put together creates this tension, and there is a tension between the other type of Nazi hunters and the kind that Rosenbaum represents, because aside from the officials or government Nazi hunters, there are the what I call freelance Nazi hunters, the most famous of which was Siemens Wiesenthal, but there were others, Tubia Friedman, Beata and Serge Klarsfeld, who I describe in the book, And these are people who did not have the authority of the government behind them. In fact, they were the ones who were pushing governments to do more, particularly at a time when most governments lost interest in the idea of hunting Nazis. The year you cited there is 1979. That's 35 years after the war. And yet 
we're sort of in the U.S. just getting around to saying, gee, maybe some of these refugees that we took from Germany weren't who they said they were. And the notion of Hunter, as you're speaking about it there and as I'm thinking about reading the book, it does bring to mind something of sport. When we hear a Hunter, we think either of a predator maybe, we think of a, even just a cat in a yard, or we think of somebody who goes out and goes on safari and is hoping to have a little bit of risk and bag the big game. So this is a theme in your book. The title may be the Nazi hunters, but they are very much educators. They very much are people that want to stop people from letting this slip out of your mind. This happens again and again in history. The stories of these war crimes are serious reading, but as in Hitlerland, you handle the topic here in the Nazi hunters without being maudlin, with really trying to teach people. It's not just dwelling over these horrible things they did, as you were just talking about with the idea of the hunters. It's about there being a real purpose to remembering, giving life to the phrase, never forget. To give you a chance to kind of demonstrate your journey to wanting to look into this, to wanting to keep this alive, go and interview these amazing people with these incredible stories of a search for justice. When you're a 13-year-old kid, and at this time, the Adolf Eichmann trial is going on, and you're with your dad, it leads you to thinking you spot someone there. I believe it's across a diner table. So I thought to sort of set the tone here and tell people what you're all about, give us a little bit about that story. Right. Well, yes, at age 13, uh, when the Eichmann trial was happening in Israel, I'm not sure how much I was reading about it or observing it. It was also being reported on TV, but clearly I'd absorbed something because I was sitting in this diner with my father. And at one point I start studying an older guy down the counter and I'm thinking, thinking, and I turn to my father and I say, dad, I think that's Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and yeah, it's uh, and my father sort of looked at me and I think I can't remember whether he suppressed a smile or something, but he sort of explained why it's unlikely to say the least. So, I mean, I think anybody who was kind of a post-war baby, as I was, grew up in this atmosphere where you heard about the war, the aftermath, and the first efforts of the Nazi hunters and the Eichmann trial is the central part of this drama, which I describe in great detail, it began to have an, an impact on the popular imagination. And I'd add another personal note on this. My father grew up, my parent, both my parents grew up in Poland. My father was in the Polish army in World War II. He later escaped from Poland during the occupation when he was supposed to turn himself into a POW camp eventually gets to France with Polish troops that are regrouping when France fell, is evacuated by the British and served in the Polish army under British command. And I always remember him telling me how when the war was ending, he went into Germany and how like many of the victorious military folks who went in there, he couldn't find anybody who ever admitted to having supported the Nazis or supported Hitler. Every German said they had they had been opposed. And so all of this was part of the grist for my fascination with that period. And then, of course, later on as a foreign correspondent serving in, in Germany twice in Warsaw and in Moscow, these stories of the war and the aftermath of the war, the legacy of the war kept coming back. And I always found them fascinating and, and eagerly did them. There's something about that idea, I guess, they say failure is an orphan, right? 
And it's a theme in the book. It's easy for people to just say, well, let's not talk about it anymore. Hitler is dead or he's gone. Everyone doesn't know he's dead, which is why you're wondering about seeing him there in the diner. As my grandfather did, it was also a World War II veteran. My mom often says he was convinced he saw him across a train platform. He very much in the Nazi mystique is in our minds. I mean, it's the stuff of nightmares. So it burrows itself in there. Yet the face of these people is very much everyday people. And when they're searching for people, they're tracking down these former Nazis, they often do find them in those very simple jobs. They find people who they just look like their housewives or they look like their people who work at a gas station. And that's all they are. And they have put it completely out of their mind. And I wondered, how did those we call the Nazi hunters from the title of your book feel about depictions in a movie like The Boys from Brazil, where you have this idealistic Steve Gutenberg in the beginning trying to chase down Nazis, seeing them across a dining counter as you did or thought you did. Do they find any value in the idea that maybe they're disturbing the sleep, at least, even if they don't reach every person who did something horrible, that they will sort of live in fear of that knock on the door that says, hey, whoever, we're here for you, we know what you did, and you're finally going to reach justice? Yes, there was definitely that feeling that despite a lot of the kind of mythological part of it, The Boys from Brazil was a great movie, but of course it was total fiction. But the Wiesenthal-like character in reality is a very different, was a very different kind of person. I knew him quite well. I interviewed him many times in Vienna. And there was even a play about him off-Broadway recently where Wiesenthal, the character who plays Wiesenthal, sort of toys with the notion that he's portrayed as a Jewish James Bond. <laughs> and he says, well, in fact, my weapons are persistency, publicity, and paperwork. That's true, but the fact that Wiesenthal was feared and the Israelis were feared even more than they should have been by other Nazis who got away, for instance, most famously, Joseph Mengele, who was called the Angel of Auschwitz, this sinister doctor who had these horrible experiments on prisoners in Auschwitz, and escaped to Latin America and was never found until he drowned off the coast of Brazil in 1979. But his diaries show and his last writings that he lived in perpetual fear that he would be caught by the Israelis in particular or by Wiesenthal. And in fact, the Israelis had this one operation against Eichmann, which was huge, but then gave up on capturing Mengele or others. They simply didn't have the resources and had too many other priorities. But the fact that these people were afraid of the knock on the door of the Israeli Mossad agents showing up or of Seaman Wiesenthal suddenly appearing just indicates the power of a couple of examples, and in this case, particularly the Eichmann example, to instill that kind of fear. Up to that point, until Eichmann was kidnapped, many people who had, were war criminals lived almost openly in South America. In Europe, many people who had committed horrendous crimes had simply blended back into the general population. So these examples were important. Only a small fraction of those who committed war crimes were ever prosecuted, given the millions of deaths, that's it, that was inevitable. But the fact that people who were guilty of such crimes, at the very least, realized they might be vulnerable, was poetic justice of, uh, of a sort. And I think Wiesenthal and others took some satisfaction in that, and deservedly so. Your career as a journalist took you to Bonn, then the capital of West Germany. 
one of your interviews was with Kurt Waldheim. Speaking of people blending in and not being sure, this can go either way. How do you really know what somebody did or who somebody was if you don't have it right in front of you? The evidence it has been burned or the witnesses have been killed. So this was something that caused very much a controversy within the folks we call the Nazi hunters. He was Secretary General of the United Nations. He is running for president of Austria. Talk about that controversy and the split that it brings to light here between folks who want justice for war criminals. Yes, it caused a huge controversy because Waldheim had been, of course, a, one of the most prominent international figures. But the fact everyone knew that he had served in the German army during World War II and just serving in the German army was not considered evidence of any guilt. But what had clearly happened was Waldheim had spoken openly about his service on the Eastern Front, about being wounded there and then being evacuated. And then he, in his autobiography and other, other official bios, always created the impression that he went off to law school and then you know, simply started his post-war career. What he pointedly left out was that he had recovered, he'd been assigned to the Balkans, in the, with the German army as a junior intelligence officer and had served in an area where there are tremendous war crimes with units that were guilty of tremendous war crimes. So this was discovered just as he was running for the presidency in 1986. And, and the World Jewish Congress, which is based in the U.S., and by the way, Eli Rosenbaum at the time had left the Office of Special Investigations and for a couple of years was the general counsel of the World Jewish Congress, began digging into the in this evidence and then provided it to the New York Times and to Austrian publications. And it became a huge controversy. Seaman Wiesenthal, who lived in Vienna and who had worked for a long time to try to improve relations between the Jewish community and the and the Austrian population as a whole, first of all, was surprised by this attack. He felt that they should have at the very least consulted with him before they did it. And then he accused the World Jewish Congress of having gone ahead and portrayed Waldheim as a war criminal when the evidence wasn't clear on that point. It was clear that he had lied about his wartime career, but it wasn't clear that he, you could specifically accuse him of war crimes. So this reveals the kinds of rifts that took place and the emotions in that split also reflected some of the the different attitudes of European Jewish communities and American Jewish communities, where many European Jews felt that American Jews coming into these kinds of situations in societies where there's still a strong residue of anti-Semitism, they overplayed their hand. And one of the charges that particularly incensed the World Jewish Congress was when Wiesenthal said they were in part responsible for stirring up the, the anti-Semitic feelings in Austria. Rosenbaum said that's outrageous. You know, it's blaming the Jews for anti-Semitism again. So, the, you know, within the Jewish community, within the Nazi hunting community, there was this tremendous split. In Austria, you write in the Nazi hunters about this idea that they weren't forced to confront their past the way that the Germans have. And it made me think of this whole period in the context of the Cold War, not in 1979 when the U.S. gets around to checking if any of these people were former Nazis who have emigrated. But these are people who are still making up the country. And the, as the world divides into East and Western blocs, Soviet and free world, 
there's this desire to say, put the past behind us. And as George C. Scott says in the Patton movie, famously, when he's going past and he has all the German soldiers there, the former Wehrmacht up in their uniforms and they're marching and he says, I'm giving them dignity. And they say, what are you doing? And he says, we should be training them to go and fight the Russians now. You know, we should be making this faster, make them become our allies. And this desire is so fast to marshal the defeated nations, Japan, Germany, Italy, the other smaller Axis nations into each side's competing blocks. So for all these disagreements on tactics, what common threads did you find? What makes somebody worthy of being in your book, The Nazi Hunters? What makes somebody say, I'm not going to let it go? Because it's not just Jewish people here. It's not just German people. It's people all over the world that decide they're going to pitch in and that they're going to try and fight. What makes somebody do that? Yeah, very good question. Specifically on Austria, I just add, you have a good point because that attitude of we're going to have amnesia about the past instantly was particularly true in Austria, which portrayed itself always as the first victim of Hitler instead of a sort of a willing accomplice. And in fact, Wiesenthal made the point many times in Austria that a disproportionate number of, say, the concentration camps uh, commanders were Austrian not German. Austria did not really begin to deal with this until the Waldheim crisis and all that came out. And if there was anything good that came out of that controversy, it was that at least some Austrians began to deal with their past. For as for the Cold War point you made, it's very true. What happened was after the war, you have the Nuremberg trials, you have the Dachau trials and some other trials that take place. But then the Cold War sets in and countries on both sides, the United States and the Soviet Union, Britain, France and others, are much more interested in the new conflict than the old conflict. One of the people I talked to for the book was the man who had headed the first CIA outpost in West Berlin a couple of years after the war when the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, was changed into the CIA. And he himself was from a German-Jewish family. He had left as a teenager in the 30s, gone to, to Britain and then to the U.S., joined the U.S. Army, and then came back in the OSS and then the CIA. And he said, look, when I was in Berlin in that period after the war, we considered those first trials, Nuremberg, Dachau, and so forth, as having taken care of the problem. But we were not interested. No one was interested in fighting the last war. We needed Germans on our side. We needed German rocket scientists on our side. We wanted to make sure that they weren't grabbed by the, by the Russians. So we had other priorities. And so very quickly, by the late 40s, early 50s, there are very few governments really pushing this. And what, for me, determined the characters of the, that I wanted to focus on in the Nazi hunters are the people who did not accept that, who said, you cannot forget the past so quickly. First of all, you owe it to the victims, but you owe it to our sense of history. Even the fact that today we know as much about the Holocaust and some of the worst atrocities as we do is because of these people who kept these cases going. And these were, again both officials and non-officials. I could give you a couple of examples. For instance, in Poland, and you're very, very correct that not all of these were necessarily Jews. In Poland, there was a Polish investigative judge by the name of Jan Sen, and that's a German name. And as in many parts of Poland and Central Europe, there was a lot of intermingling of different nationalities. And he was from a family that was originally German, but grew up in Poland. And 
after the war became the main investigator of war crimes. For instance, he tried and convicted the case of the commandant of the concentration camp that's depicted in Schindler's List, and that man was hanged. But most famously, he interrogated the longest-serving commandant of Auschwitz by the name of Rudolf Hess, who is not to be confused with the Hitler aide, Rudolf Hess, who fled to Britain. Uh, and, and he interrogated this man for, for days and weeks and had him write down everything about how they formed Auschwitz, how the killing mechanism worked, and about his personal feelings. And it became one of the most chilling documents of the Holocaust an autobiography that was published after he was hanged in Poland. But he treated this man very graciously. And even though in Poland at the time, which was by then controlled by the Soviet Union, a Stalinist state where he could have just gotten a confession, had him hanged right away, he focused on getting all of this information in part because he realized we have to understand all this, have a full historical record so that people later on will not be able to say this did not happen or somehow just say this was just normal uh, sort of terrible stuff that happens in war. This was extraordinarily different. And then you had other people, let's say in Germany, very early you had a German Jewish judge who was from a secular Jewish family, but not religious at all. But he had gone into exile for obvious reasons because he was also a social democrat and then came back and he orchestrated the first Auschwitz trial in Germany in the 60s of the various people who worked in Auschwitz as much to teach the German people about what had happened when they didn't want to even face those facts as to punish them again. So again and again, you have people who say you cannot avoid these things. And the fact that at the Eichmann trial and then other trials, force people to look at their own past and to begin to ask, in many cases, the younger generation in the 60s, their parents, what did you do during the war? What was your role in? This was a painful discussion, but it was one that was much needed and is a result of the efforts of these people I call the Nazi hunters. We're speaking with Andrew Nagorski, author of The Nazi Hunters. You can find him online at andrewnagorski.com or at Andrew Nagorski on Twitter. Overseas Press Club writes, quote, The Nazi hunters, like their prey, are passing away. As Nagorski points out, that is why their stories can and should be told now, unquote. I want to focus on that question of timing that we've touched on a little bit here. The crimes of Hitler and his henchmen, they're 75 years old now. You talked a little bit about young people. It's easy for them to look at the Nazis as cartoons. There's a lot of silly movies that they'll be in, Nazis on the Moon. Google your favorite politician, you'll get a Hitler Photoshop of them. Never mind you Google your least favorite politician, you'll probably get a lot more. But it's everywhere, and I always try to remind myself, not that I'm above the occasional war joke, but... If everyone's a Nazi, nobody is. And you write about educating this next generation, people who are young now. So make your pitch to somebody who's too young even to have parents that were in the war as you did, maybe too young to have grandparents in the war as I did. Why is the Nazi hunters something that they should pick up today in 2016? I think it's part of understanding your own past and the role of the individual in history. For better or worse, all of us are capable of 
sometimes very good deeds, and sometimes, unfortunately, horrible things. And I think one of the reasons why there is this ongoing fascination with the Nazi era is that it does represent something evil, something dark, but it also represents how ordinary people get caught up in this and do things that you would think that any decent individual would never agree to. So there's that part of it, but there's also the activity of individuals for what I would say the betterment of humanity. Then that's these Nazi hunters, by doing what they did, by making sure that they keep this issue alive, by forcing a reckoning with at least some of those who were responsible for the worst crimes, are paying homage to the victims but are also teaching lessons about history. Because one of the most important lessons of history is it's never acceptable to say, oh, I was just following orders, so I had no responsibility for what I did. What every one of these war crimes trials demonstrates is that we all have personal accountability. And that when there are orders which are clearly violate, violate any notion of humanity, of decency, you have an obligation not to follow those orders. And one small illustration of this, there was a trial, one of the uh, follow-up trials to Nuremberg of the commanders of what were called the Einsatzgruppen, the special killing squads in the East, these groups that went out before the gas chambers were even operating and just shot people in village after village. And one of these commanders was being questioned by the judge from Pennsylvania, and he kept claiming, oh, I was just following orders. And finally, the judge, in exasperation, said, well, if you were ordered to shoot your sister, would you shoot your sister? And the defendants looked at him and couldn't, didn't know what to say, even though he's a highly educated man, a man who had, was a law professor in, in earlier life and so forth, because he knew that if he said, I'd shoot my sister, he somehow showed himself to be a monster. But if he said, I would not shoot my sister, he was acknowledging that he had free will and that he had an option here. So I think all of these things are not just some dark chapter of the past, but contain lessons for the current generation and for future generations. And as you were telling that story and one earlier, I thought this idea that it's the past, leave it alone, why are you picking at this? It was something that they asked Dr. Martin Luther King repeatedly. They said, gee, you come to a town and you march through and look what you stir up. And he likened it to a doctor. He said nobody would ever blame a doctor for using his skill to expose the cancer and try to bring it to the forefront and try to cure it. He says, and that's what we're doing. It's already there. There's this cancer of racism. And in this case, there's this cancer of anti-Semitic feeling, of dehumanizing people, of all the bad things that we know about the Third Reich. And so it is important to know it because it still lingers there. If you watch the documentary film, I think it's called The Children of Hitler, and there's one man who's a survivor of this era, and he says, he goes to the nursing homes, and he says, you're the people that I watch for. He said, because if the things go down again, you know, you have to remember what it felt like to say, well, yeah, we'll go along. It Just because you think that you're an enlightened person, I mean, these things come, and it is very important, I think, for people today to realize that it's still there lurking. It's not just something that a bunch of 
German people did. I mean, we don't make the Japanese after the war confront what they did because we very much want to turn them against the Soviets and get all of the poison fruit, really, literally, of their biological weapons programs and chemical weapons, all the things they tested on the Chinese. We forget that very quickly and sweep it under. So it's not just because you have this German accent or German ancestry that you would do this. So that's my argument when I talk to people why this war is so important, because we do have the mechanized capability to do much more horrible things than we did in the past. Yes, and that's, I mean, I think the Martin Luther King explanation is excellent. Again, as you say, this is not a problem confined to one nationality, although the worst manifestation of it was in Germany at that time. There are two women who feature prominently in the Nazi hunters. Each one is on an opposite side of the crimes. One, Ilse Koch, and the other, Beate Klarsfeld. Give us an introduction to these two women and tell us about them. As you say, these two women are opposites in so many ways. They're both German women, by the way. Ilse Koch was the wife and later the widow of the commandant of Buchenwald, one of the truly horrendous concentration camps. And she had no official position there, which in some ways makes it worse what she actually did. According to prisoners who testified later, she would go around and have prisoners she singled out beaten and tortured. There were a lot of lurid tales of her also sexually taunting prisoners and then having them killed. Some of these tales were not confirmed, and there were even tales that she had some of the tattooed prisoners skinned and then uh, and their bodies skinned and then used uh, their skin for lampshades and all, all, all sorts of grotesque purposes. Those tales, in the end, appear apocryphal. But what, what was certainly true was that she contributed to the torture and killing of prisoners. And she was tried in what were called the Dachau trials, sentenced to life imprisonment by the U.S. Army. Eventually, when the Cold War starts, she gets pardoned and only serves four years. But at that point, even West Germany, which had wanted to put an end to these trials, feels that her crimes are so horrendous that they put her on trial again. She is sentenced to another term, this time in a German prison, life imprisonment. And eventually she commits suicide. I believe it was in 1967 in prison. On the other hand, you have Bata Klarsfeld, who was born in 1939 into a family in Berlin. Her father goes off to war fighting with the German army. Her parents are clearly apolitical. As she's growing up, she doesn't really hear anything about the war other than that we suffered, meaning we Germans, with no sense of empathy for others. But then at age 20, she goes off to Paris as an au pair, meets and falls in love with a young man by the name of Serge Klarsfeld, who is Jewish, whose father died in Auschwitz. And she suddenly learns the true history of the war, the Holocaust, through her future husband's experiences. And she becomes one of the most, I'd say, courageous and sometimes reckless of these freelance Nazi hunters. And just give you an example of one of the things she did. She was, first of all, she tried to expose the German officials, SS officials and others, who had deported French Jews from France to the concentration camps, including her husband, Serge's father. And they would try to track down these people. And sometimes to get to the point of people hiding in plain sight, she said, all I had to do was basically call information or look him up in the phone book. And I find the name 
of this person who had been an SS officer in France. And then she and her husband mounted a campaign to have charges put against them. But when a lot of her protests were ignored, and particularly when in 1968, West Germany elected as its chancellor a man by the name of Kurt Kiesinger, who had a Nazi past, who had served the Third Reich, she was so incensed that her protests were being ignored that she got herself a press pass and went to a party convention, snuck up on stage, and then slapped Kiesinger across the face yelling, Nazi, Nazi. Now, you can imagine the reaction of the security guards who threw themselves on her with the uproar this created. And remember, this was 1968, the same year that Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy was assassinated in this country. She could have been killed. But that action so embarrassed, I think, many Germans that eventually, even though there was a backlash, it helped generate this whole discussion about Germany's Nazi past and coming to terms with it. And Kissinger did not last long as chancellor. So here are two women, totally different personalities. And again, I think it illustrates how men and women can play both positive and negative roles in this drama, regardless of their background. You're not quite sure where they'll end up. When you research the Nazi hunters, I was thinking of the emotional impact on you as the writer. You're trying to be a journalist. You want to have some detachment. But I'm imagining you sitting across from somebody who has simply never been asked these questions before by anybody, even family. As you said, these are hard conversations to have. What did you do during the war? Or how did you suffer during the war? I mean, we're not only talking about people who are on the right side, I guess you'd say, of the barbed wire or the wrong side, the easy side, maybe. But we're talking about people who suffered there, maybe lost their whole family. So describe the emotional impact on you as a journalist, as a writer. You're sitting across from somebody who has suffered so much, has sacrificed so much to bring justice here after the war. Well, I would say... In all my reporting about the war, about the Holocaust and and other crimes, there was never a time I could take for granted what my reaction would be or what I what would be described or what how people would talk. Of course, with the Nazi hunters, I came to admire them, their tenacity and for much of what they did, even at times when with sometimes their recklessness. But I'll give you an exa- a couple of examples of the kinds of things that really surprised me in the course of reporting on these issues. I remember at one point, well, this was quite a while ago, 20 years ago, I was reporting for Newsweek in Poland, but we were doing a cover story about the last days of Auschwitz. It was the 50th, coming up the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camp. And so we decided to reconstruct the last few months of Auschwitz and what it was like for prisoners of the camp. I interviewed countless survivors from of many nationalities. And I remember I was speaking with a Dutch survivor of Auschwitz. And he had, a, of course, a harrowing story about that last period in Auschwitz, a death march he survived and all that. And at the end of it, I would always tell these survivors, look, I'm going to ask you about the things in your life which were obviously extraordinarily painful and difficult. If at any point you don't want to speak anymore, or I'm asking something you don't want to respond to, I fully understand. Or if you want to just stop, I fully understand. But he kept talking. And in many of these cases, we talk on a great length and great detail. And at the end of it, I thanked him and again said, I apologize for making him sort of relive all this. And he said, don't apologize. I never told this story to anyone. And I said, what do you mean? You mean you never told your family, your children? 
said, no, no one ever asked. And that just stunned me that there could be that kind of silence in a family. I know many survivors were reluctant to talk, but the fact that eventually somebody in the family didn't at least try to get them to unburden themselves of some of this was extraordinary. Another example on the other side is we think of the children of the survivors, but then they're also the children of the perpetrators. What it must it be like to live with the legacy knowing that your father, say, committed horrible crimes? And at one point in Germany, I met a man by the name of Nicholas Frank. His father was Hans Frank. Hans Frank was Hitler's governor general in Poland. So he presided over Poland during that entire six years when Germany occupied Poland, where the Holocaust was carried out there, where millions of Poles, both Jews and non-Jews, were killed and tortured. And his son was a journalist in Germany who was a very decent man. He was born in 39. So as a child, he, of course, had very few memories of the war, although one of them, he had a vague memory of watching some figures in striped uniforms entertaining him. It was only later in life that he recognized what that was, that these were concentration camp prisoners brought in for his entertainment. But he did remember in 1947 when his father was tried at Nuremberg and he was about to be hanged. By that time, Nicholas Frank was seven or eight years old. He remembered his mother taking him to see his father for the last time before his father was to be hanged. And he said, I've always been furious about my father for the fact that he acted during this, our meeting, as if everything was normal. He never acknowledged what was about to happen. And he never said, don't leave the life I did. Learn something from this. And he said, I'm a typical liberal European. I oppose the death penalty. But in only one case was the death penalty justified in the case of my father. And I just... Remember, that kind of took my breath away. How do you live with that? The scars people have, the emotional trauma goes on in so many ways. And no matter how many times you hear these stories, you feel that each one deserves their own story. And in the case of the Nazi hunters, I just felt that it was a relatively small group of people who had such a huge impact over time. And I began to see the, the connections between their actions and how one set of actions in one country set off the set of a response in other countries. I felt we owe it to these people to capture their stories while it was still possible. Luckily, I'd, I'd been capturing some of them over time, even before I knew I'd write this book. But then when I started writing the book, I kept trying to get as many interviews as possible, feeling that I was really racing against time. And in fact, four of the people I interviewed for the book, I have a long list of people I interviewed, have died between the time I interviewed them and the book's publication now. That leads me to my last question, and it comes from the last words in your book. You give thanks to your wife in The Nazi Hunters that acknowledgement I thought bookended nicely with the image of your father sort of gently letting you down that it wasn't Hitler you were seeing in the diner when you were a boy. You're researching these things. These are really horrendous crimes. These are heavy things. These are people that now carry the burden of generational guilt on some of the former Nazi officers' children. So how did you manage to leave that on the desk, I wondered. And I wanted you to not only acknowledge your wife here, but 
What do you think other historians' spouses can learn from her example in supporting you in this work? Well, I think, first of all, I should say that my wife grew up in Poland. She's also, of course, a post-war child. But growing up in Poland, she was even more surrounded by stories of the war, the occupation, the horrendous deaths that people endured than I was, because in the United States, there was always more of a sense of that this happened over there, and Poland over there was there. So she grew up on this. We met when I was an exchange student at the University of Krakow, and at the Jagiellonian University in, in Krakow, and we married at the time. So she then shared in my experiences when I became a journalist, traveled the world with me, and we all need good editors, as you know, <laughs> as every writer knows. And she's always been my first editor. She's a very good editor in terms of style and detecting anything that's a little off key. Before I send it to my editor at Simon & Schuster, I always have her read things. But in this project and in other projects related to the war, I was also depending on her to be able to talk about what I was doing. I did not leave it at my desk, I have to say. But she was as fascinated by these topics and conversations as I was, and in fact, accompanied me on many of the interviews with Nazi hunters. And I found that extremely useful, not just for kind of moral support, but for being able to then describe kind of the body language, the setting and so forth. She was often much more observant than I am. And so we could discuss exactly what, and not just the transcript of the interview, which of course I had on tape and so forth, but the sense of the personality and the whole experience. So I owe her an awful lot. I think a book like this takes over your life. And I would find it hard to compartmentalize. Of course, you go off and do other things. You go see a movie, you go uh, for a swim, whatever, go on an occasional vacation. But it's always in your head. And if, if I would not have that to share with someone who understands also the context very well, I'm not sure I could have done that. So I'm not sure if there's a lesson there for other spouses. I hesitate to prescribe, but I say... My instinct would be, I would hope that spouses would want to be as much a part of any such project as possible. And I'm grateful that Christina has been and I hope will continue to be. Well, I know I enjoyed the finished product. So please thank you very much for this journey. This really, we're chasing people with you. We're searching for justice with these Nazi hunters. Gives us a taste of this inspiring quest in the wake of the Second World War. So I wanted to thank you for joining me today. Thank you for writing the book and best of luck with it. Thank you so much, Dean. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Again, our book's title is The Nazi Hunters. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at our website, historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. We get a few pennies every time somebody makes a purchase, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Please remember to visit andrewnagorski.com and to follow Andrew Nagorski on Twitter, and you can also follow us at History Dean. One correction, by the way. I mentioned that documentary, and I called it Children of Hitler. The actual name is Hitler's Children, and you can check that out at hitlerschildren.com. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, 
please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Nuremberg is more than an answer to a question. As Justice Jackson said, this trial is part of the great effort to make the peace more secure. It constitutes juridical action of a kind to ensure that those who start a war will pay for it personally. Nuremberg stands as a warning to all those who plan and wage aggressive war. Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.